All right, guys, it's Trail. Uh, I'm back again for another episode of my own podcast, which is the Game Trail Podcast. This will be the fourth episode. Uh, I'm going to be doing this one solo. So I'm going to take a stab at uh, maybe 45 minutes to an hour of just me talking, uh, which is awfully hard for me to do. But I, I wanted to do this today on my own just because I had some things that I've been thinking about and I wanted to get a chance to talk to them and hopefully help somebody out here. Uh, mostly I wanted to talk about preseason preparation and we're knocking on the door of hunting seasons. Uh, my first hunts kick off August 19th. So I've got a general season deer tag here in Utah. I also bought the over the counter general season elk tag, uh, which is the spike cow or the any bull unit tag here in my home state of Utah. A uh, cool thing about that is I can hunt uh, at the same time and the same unit as my general season deer tag, and I can harvest either a cow elk or a spike elk on that unit. So that kicks off here pretty quick. I mean, we're, we're just two weeks out, and I'm really thinking about just the details. So the minor things, the last, you know, checks, if you will, of my own equipment and really confirming that my bow and my arrow setup is completely dialed. Um, I've been listening to lots of other podcasts. I think recently I was listening to a podcast. Uh, I think it's on the line by Levi Morgan. I think it's him and a, a, maybe a relative or a buddy, but, um, essentially he was talking about the difference between great shooters and, you know, shooters that might be good shooters or just slightly above average. And, um, you know, he made a point at one time that he said, you know, I could take somebody that can shoot, you know, maybe a four inch circle, at 40 yards and I could shrink him down to maybe a two inch circle in just a couple months. If I just had the opportunity to sit down with that individual and just run through individual, uh, processes or, you know, a trick or a tip in regards to their equipment. And, you know, he made the suggestion that the the devil really is in the details, really the difference between a good shooter, a great shooter, or, you know, you can even extrapolate that out between a a good hunter and then a great hunter, somebody that absolutely fills their tag every single year. It's just the little things. It's just the details and all the little details stack up into, you know, great things. So it's had me thinking about the the little things, the details, and that's what I wanted to dive in today. Uh, I made a list of just some checks that I wanted to run through and maybe some tips and tricks. And and I hope that some of it will will help some of you out there. Um, I'm going to be talking a lot about my bow and arrow setup. Uh, towards the end of it, I'll be talking a little bit about some of my equipment and just some of the things that I like to do this time of year, just to check to make sure that I'm absolutely ready to go once opening day arrives. Uh, before I dive in too deep, uh, I did want to hit you with a promo code. You can use the promo code GAMETRAIL. That's just G-A-M-E-T-R-A-I-L. Uh, when you sign up for a Go Hunt Insider account or a Go Hunt Maps account, uh, if you do that, we're actually going to give you 50 points back, which is you know, $50 that you can use towards the purchase of any gear that you want in the Go Hunt gear shop. That's if you sign up for an insider account. If you sign up for a Go Hunt Maps account, we're going to give you 20 points back into the Go Hunt gear shop that you're going to be able to use, again, towards the purchase of any gear in the gear shop. And now is a great time to pick up any of those last minute items. Um, you know, we've got our own Go Hunt game bags. Those have been selling fantastic. We've had tons of good feedback. Uh, that's a great little last minute addition because you're definitely going to need some game bags when you go into the field to go hunting. Um, at least y'all should plan on having some game bags because hopefully you, you find some sex, success and get to uh, utilize those game bags. So use that promo code Game Trail. Uh, sign up for a Go Hunt Insider account or a Go Hunt Maps account. Uh, so with that, I'm going to dive in. 
Uh, I'm going to just kind of run through. And like I said, the first part of this podcast is going to be real heavy on my bow and arrow setup and and also broadheads. I'm probably going to dive into a little bit of a rabbit hole and talk about broadhead tuning because I do think there's some, you know, misinformation, maybe some misunderstood things about broadhead tuning. Um, I've read some tuning guides over the years that suggested things that are contrary to what I'm going to suggest to you. Uh, this is based on a lot of experience and just trial and error. And I'm going to give you some ideas on what I think is the best way to make sure that your broadheads and your fill tips are absolutely, you know, just hitting together in the intended spot that you want to hit. Uh, so with that, I'm going to dive in. Um, one of the first things I do with my bow and arrow setup, uh, I've been shooting all summer. I've had my bow, it's tuned. I've been shooting pretty good. Um, you know, I ran through the full tuning process with my bow initially, uh, with field tips, which is, you know, paper tune. I like to paper tune. I'll often paper tune at, you know, five, six yards in my basement here. I got a little, a little bow shop in my basement. Uh, I may stretch that out to maybe 12 yards and shoot it just to see what the hole looks like. Um, uh, but that's really kind of my process for tuning my bow is paper tuning. Um, you know, I might mess around a little bit with a bear shaft tune, which is that process of taking a flat shaft and a bear shaft and maybe shooting it to at 20, 30, 40 yards. And, you know, if your, your bow is really tuned and you have a really solid, uh, form and, you know, your grip is consistent and your release is consistent, uh, you can get those, uh, flat shafts and your bear shaft to fly together. They're going to hit the same point. They're going to have the same angle going into the target, which is the ultimate goal, which would tell you that, you know, not only one that your form is good to go, but also that your, your bow is tuned. Um, now that can be kind of finicky. Cause like I said, you, it, it's very dependent on each individual's form and how consistent you are through that entire process. Uh, so I, I don't dive too deep down into that. Um, I will paper tune. I will often, you know, do a quick walk back tune after I've paper tuned, which is that process of putting a vertical line on a target, you know, and then using your 20 yard pin to shoot at that vertical line at 20 yards and then moving back to 30 yards, shooting with your 20 yard pin again, moving back to 40 yards. And once again, shooting at that vertical line with your 20 yard pin and then, you know, 50 and 60 doing the same thing and utilizing your 20 yard pin throughout that whole process. And what you're going to get from that is you're going to, you're going to see that line of arrows, uh, in the drop and, you know, a well-tuned center shot bow, you're going to have a, you know, vertical line of arrows that are going to stack up in that line that you put on the target. You know, if you've got an angled, uh, direction of your arrows, the impact points are either going down and left to the right, then, you know, you can make some slight adjustments to your rest and walk those back into the center of that vertical line. That's kind of how a walk back tune works. And, you know, I usually do do a quick walk back tune after I've paper tuned my bow. But if I've got those two done, you know, I've been shooting all summer out of a bow that I feel like is relatively tuned. You know, I'm getting into this time frame of the year. My next step is to really start to think heavily about making sure that my broadheads and my arrow combinations are absolutely good to go and that the broadhead is hitting the intended target and it's also hitting with my field tips. There's nothing that, you know, can be more frustrating than when you go out and you practice with your field tips all summer, you screw on a broadhead, you shoot those arrows and they're hitting, you know, off of your field tips doesn't give you a lot of confidence. So ultimately what you want is your, your field tips and your broadheads to hit together. And I'm going to kind of run you through that process. But, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, selecting arrows and picking arrows to actually get out in the field and go hunting with. So one of my first processes of selecting arrows is, is I like to go through the arrows that I've been practicing with through the summer. And I want to pick the best arrows out of my 
out of my quiver, my field quiver that I've been, you know, practicing with. And I want to select those and match them up with a broadhead. And those are the arrows that are going to go in my quiver. Uh, I want those to weigh consistent. So I don't think that there's a huge difference maybe between, you know, a grain or maybe even two grains, if you will. But I don't want wide ranges of uh, weights in my arrows that are going to go into my quiver. Ultimately, the goal is to make sure that all five of the arrows that are going to make it into my quiver to go hunting with weigh exactly the same or within just a, you know, a half a grain of each other. Um, I also want to make sure that the arrows that I'm going to go hunting with are as straight as they can possibly be. And when I say straight, I mean also the broadhead is straight in alignment uh, with the arrow and the insert. And when those arrows spin, that they're going to spin just absolutely clean. Uh, so one of the first processes I go through in selecting arrows is I like to go through and flex all my arrows. Uh, I do that just to make sure that... Uh, there's no cracks, there's no breaks in my arrows. I definitely don't want an arrow to blow up when it's coming out of my bow. So that's probably the first process I do. The second would be to go ahead and spin each individual arrow. Um, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. You can put it on like a Pine Ridge arrow spinner or a last chance arrow spinner. You can put the point up against a wall or you know a piece of cardboard against a wall and you can spin those arrows on that arrow spinner. And you can just check to see the point, the end of that, to see if there's any wobble in it. Uh, the process that I use is a lot more simple, but I actually think it's just as effective because you can definitely feel it. And that's to take the arrow with the point, uh, put the point in your, you know, if you're left hand, if you're, if you're right handed, you know, cradle the arrow in kind of the webbing of your right hand and blow on the outside of those veins and rotate that arrow just really fast. You'll be able to spin that arrow uh, with just by blowing on those veins really hard. And when you do that, you'll actually feel that arrow spin and you'll feel if there's any wobble in the arrow. Uh, you can feel it in your left hand as that point's moving around for sure. And that's kind of the process I go through initially. It's super quick and I can go through, you know, maybe 15 practice arrows that I've been using throughout the summer. Uh, I'm going to blow on those arrows, each individual one. I'm going to check them for alignment. I'm going to check to see if there's any wobble in it. And inevitably, you know, out of 15 arrows, if you've taken the time to build them correctly, you know, you're going to find 10 or so, hopefully, that are just absolutely perfectly straight. And you'll feel it. I mean, you can definitely feel it when you practice this method of blowing on those veins and spinning those arrows in your hands. You'll feel any kind of wobble in that uh, in the head. Uh, after I've picked maybe my top five arrows and what I'll do is I'll actually go through my, my practice arrows. Maybe I've got 15. I'll typically label, you know, the first five arrows. This is my A team. I'll go through, label the next, you know, the B group and then, you know, the C group. Um, and I've kind of labeled my arrows out that way so that I know that if I use an arrow out of my quiver, uh, I've got one that's right in line from, you know, hopefully you've got a bunch of A arrows, but, uh, if you have to pull one, you know, you know that you're getting the next best arrow from your B group. That's kind of how I label mine. Um, next step would be, again, do the exact same thing with your broadheads. So take your broadheads, you know, out of the package, screw them onto your five straightest arrows and do the exact same thing. Spin those things again and ensure that you've got good alignment with your broadhead, your insert, and that those arrows are spinning absolutely true. Um, if you've got any wobble, uh, in those at the time when you screw your broadheads on, that's a point where you can actually go through and potentially flex out the wobble. Uh, and what I mean by that is you can screw the broadhead into the insert. You can put a little pressure on the arrow and rotate it as you go and test it every, you know, you can essentially 
flex it, check it for straightness and alignment, you know, by blowing on it or putting it on an aero spinner. And then, uh, you know, see if it's straightened out, you know, if not rotate it slightly in the degree of the arrow, do the exact same thing, flex it. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get the alignment to kind of bend in, uh, in straightness, if you will, you're trying to bend it. So it's straight between the broadhead and the insert. And you're trying to get that arrow to spin absolutely true. Um, typically if you got a good broadhead, you've got a good straight arrow, good insert, uh, you're not going to have too many issues with getting wobble, uh, in your arrows. You should have five, at least five arrows with broadhead that's been completely true. Uh, so that's kind of my pro process of selecting them. Uh, I will also go through and weigh all my arrows. Uh, sometimes I'll write it on the arrow in a silver Sharpie so that I know, you know, what each individual arrow weighs. And like I said, I'm trying to match my five hunting arrows, my A team, if you will, within about a half a grain of each other. And ideally, if you've got enough arrows that you've been practicing with, you shouldn't have any issues with getting, you know, five arrows that are, you know, spin true and weigh consistently between the five arrows. Um, okay, so next step after I've selected my arrows is to really go in and start shooting your broadheads and just confirm that your broadheads are hitting with your filled points. Um, this process, you know, I would suggest that you use the broadheads that you're, you're planning on hunting with. Uh, you may not want to, you know, use those exact combos because then it might require you to either replace blades or replace the broadhead. So there are times when I'll, you know, designate maybe two or three practice heads and I will put those each individual heads on the various arrows that I'm planning on hunt with, screw those on, and then shoot those arrows out to distance. Uh, I like to shoot my broadheads out to, you know, 80, even a hundred yards, just to confirm that they are hitting the intended target and, you know, that they're also still hitting with my filled tips. Um, so that's kind of the process I, I take, uh, no broadhead, regardless of whether it's a mechanical or a fixed blade is going to fly, you know, exactly the same as a field tip, uh, a big fixed blade head, you know, even a medium fixed blade head, it's got a whole lot more surface area on the front of that arrow than a field tip does. So same with the mechanical. So there, you know, is the potential to get, uh, somewhat of a different flight, um, so you want to be aware of that. You definitely want to shoot them and you, you want to confirm it. There's, there's nothing worse than, you know, headed out into the field and, you know, not having complete and total confidence that your broadhead is going to hit exactly where it should be. Um, so uh, this is where I want to dive into broadhead tuning. So broadhead tuning, I think, like I said, I think there's some, there's some misinformation potentially out there. Every year I get a ton of questions from people, you know, I can't get my broadheads to hit with my filled tips and how do I fix that? And this is where I think there's been some misinformation. So I'm just going to give you the process of what I do to ensure that my broadheads and my filled tips are hitting identical. So um, let's say that you go out and you shoot and you shoot a field tip, your field tip hits dead middle, you shoot a broadhead, and the broadhead is hitting left of your field tip. So a broadhead that hits left of your field tip would, you know, most often indicate, assuming that your spine and everything is good to go, that you have a right tail uh, paper tear. So it would, it would result in a right paper tear. And if you think about paper tearing and paper tuning, you fix a right paper tear by moving the rest to the left. Um, so you, you want to think about that. Uh, same goes for the other way. If you got a broadhead that's hitting right of your filled tips, 
uh, that would indicate a left paper tear. And if you think about paper tuning, you fix a left paper tear by moving the rest to the right. So this is kind of counterintuitive to what a lot of people or tuning guides have suggested. A lot of tuning guides suggest that you move the broadhead back in with your rest back towards your fill tip. Um, I'm actually suggesting to you uh, that you move your rest the direction that your broadhead misses. So if you have a broadhead that's missing left, and this is, I should suggest this is on the horizontal. Um, we'll get into vertical here in a sec. But so to kind of sum this up, if you have a broadhead that's hitting left, move your rest to the left. If you have a broadhead that's hitting right, move your rest to the right. Uh, and hopefully you don't have any vertical issues. If you if you have vertical issues with your broadhead, it's actually opposite. So if you have a broadhead that's hitting high, you're going to lower your rest. If you have a broadhead that's hitting low, you're going to move your rest up. So it's opposite for the, the vertical, up and down, horizontal, left and right. Essentially what you're going to do is you're going to chase the miss in your broadhead. So left missing broadhead, move your rest left. Broadhead missing right, move your rest right. And then, like I said, on the vertical, if you're hitting high with your broadhead, you got to lower your rest. If you're hitting high, or excuse me, if you're hitting low with your broadhead, you know, you're going to move your rest up. So uh, that's a lot of information there. If you got to listen to that again, go, go ahead and, and digest that. But essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to tune your rest and your bow so that your broadheads and your field tips are hitting together. Now, your broadheads are they're bigger. There's just more surface area. They're going to catch more air. So the amount of movement that it might take in your rest, whether left or right, to get your broadheads to hit with your field tips is going to be minimal. I mean, it's it's a tiny amount. So, and the, and the goal also, I should say, is not at this point to get your broadheads and your field points hitting the exact intended spot because there's going to be some movement there. The goal at this point is to ensure that your broadheads and your field tips are hitting together the same point. Not necessarily the point you're aiming at, but the exact same point. So once you get your broadheads and your field tips and those are hitting together, then the next step is to move your sight. So you're going to move your sight and walk both of the groups of broadheads and field tips into the center of your intended target. Now, if you do that, you do it out to distance yardages. You know, like I said, I like to shoot out to 80, 100 yards. Um, you know, it's not necessarily that I'm going to shoot an animal at 80 and 100 yards because it's highly unlikely that I'm going to. But if I can get those field tips and broadheads to tune and group together out to those distances, it just gives me the ultimate confidence in my setup. Definitely everything from 60 yards and in. So that's kind of broadhead tuning in a nutshell. Um, you know, I, if you got questions about that, you know, drop them in a comment, shoot me an email, uh, and just reach out or shoot me a DM. But that is my process for tuning broadheads. And like I said, I think it's probably a little bit counter, uh, to, to some of the stuff that I've read in the past, but, uh, hopefully that helps you guys helps you out. Um, the next thing I want to talk about a little bit is, um, you know, actually your broadhead. So your blades, uh, I did a little a little research, a little diving, and I, I definitely think it is paramount that you have just absolutely razor sharp broadheads. So the broadheads that you're planning to hunt with, if you've been you know practicing with those heads, replace the blades. You know if you're shooting a, a fixed blade head that has replaceable blades, I would replace them. 
Same thing goes for mechanical. If you've been shooting a mechanical, you know, even the mechanical is like a sever that's got the locking screw that goes, goes through the ferrule that locks those blades in. You know, it's going into a foam target. It's going to dull your blades. So in my opinion, replace your blades. If you're shooting a broadhead, uh, you know, like a helix or, you know, an iron wheel or a kudu, one of those broadheads that, you know, essentially you're going to have to resharpen those blades to take them out into the field and hunt with, you know, take the time to put into resharpening those broadheads because what ultimately is going to kill the animal is a sharp broadhead. So I did a little reading. Um, essentially there's two ways that, uh, or two, two types of ways that a broadhead tipped arrow is going to kill an animal. Uh, one of them being uh, hemorrhagic shock. So blood loss. So enough blood loss that the circulatory system can no longer supply blood to the, and oxygen and your organs fail, right? So that's, it's slicing. It's, uh, it's a, a quick and ethical death if indeed your broadhead is sharp and you get a nice clean cut on those. And, you know, the sharper they are, you know, the quicker they're going to bleed. Um, the other one would be, uh, you know, if you hit, you know, double lung, for example. So essentially double lung, you're, you're letting the, the breath out of them, right? They're not able to, to breathe the oxygen supply tanks. They go into shock and, you know, they die. But long and short of this is that your broadheads have to be razor sharp. Um, and that's one reason why personally, uh, and again, this is a very personal take, why I am a fan of replaceable blade broadheads. Uh, you know, if you're talking like a QAD Exodus or a Slick Trick, um, just a standard head or even, you know, like a Viper Trick, something like that. It's very easy to replace the blades in those and a replacement set of uh, blades is pretty cheap. You're talking maybe 20 bucks for a set of three or four. Um, and what you're ensuring is that you get a razor sharp broadhead. Same thing goes with a lot of mechanicals. You can replace the blades in those, including the ones like the sever that I'm shooting. Um, one of the reasons, and again, I know that there's a lot of companies out there that make really solid heads that are, you know, not replaceable blade heads and they're super sharp and I get that. I totally understand it. But if you've been practicing with them and inevitably it's going to take some of the edge off of that, you know, maybe they're, they're still sharp enough to kill. And certainly they are. I see animals that are harvested every year. But for me, I like the confidence of having the absolute sharpest broadhead that I possibly can. Uh, I can't, I can't barely sharpen a knife, um, you know, to, to factory settings when I got it, I have a hard enough time sharpening a knife. So I can't imagine what it's like to resharpen a broadhead. Um, there are people that can do it for sure. Uh, and, and again, those broadheads are made of super high quality materials and, you know, they, they can be super sharp, but in my opinion, whether it's, you're shooting a replaceable he blade head, you should replace those blades before you actually get out in the field and go hunting. Or if you're shooting a standard head, that's, you know, you can't replace the blades. Uh, you should be proficient at sharpening those blades. And I think you owe it to your animal. You owe it to yourself to go out into the field with the absolute sharpest broadheads that you possibly can. Um, so yeah, definitely broadhead sharpness is, is something I, I'm addressing right now as well as broadhead tuning. Um, next thing I wanted to talk about, just another little tidbit would be making sure that your entire setup is completely silent. Uh, I noticed a couple days ago, I was drawing my bow back at the range and as I drew back, I could hear just a little bit of creaking. It wasn't super loud, but it was definitely audible to me. 
Um, and I would assume that an elk or a deer have, you know, got better hearing than I do. So if I can hear it, there's potential for an animal to hear it and, and bump. Uh, I did a little testing and, and tried some different things with my bow. And I found out that my cable guard, the little cable glide on my Matthews bow, had just an ever so slight creak in it. And, you know, it's a V3X bow. I've been shooting it for a number of years at this point. And what I did is I came home, I pulled the cable uh, guard off and I just cleaned it up really, really good. Uh, just wiped off all the dust. I cleaned the strings, the cables right there that go through those cable glides and, you know, took it back out and it was absolutely quiet. Um, but that's a little, a little detail. It was probably going on for a few weeks. I just hadn't really thought about it or noticed. But when you start thinking about being in close proximity of an animal and getting a shot, something like that could ruin that situation. So, you know, make sure that there's no creaks in your bow. Make sure that there's no limbs that are, you know, popping or creaking or your cam or a cable guard. Um, you know, listen to your bow as you draw it back. Is the arrow, is it, is it's coming across the rest? Is there an audible uh, noise uh, of that arrow sliding across the rest? And if it is, you know, there's things that you can do, whether it's moleskin or, you know, an adhesive backed piece of uh, felt uh, to line your arrow rest, but in essence, what you want to do is make that thing as absolutely silent as you possibly can. Kind of going along with that, something that I like to do every year is I'd like to take the riser portion of my bow where my rest sits, and I like to cut out a piece of adhesive-backed foam, and I cut it in the shape of the riser right there. I just mark it in with a pencil, and I cut that in, and I lay that piece of foam um, both going up the riser and then actually down onto the shelf of the riser. And I do that just in case, and it's, you know, unlikely because I'm shooting an HHA uh, drop away, or not an HHA, QAD drop away rest, the ultra rest. Um, you know, so it sits in the upright position as it is, but, you know, if there ever is a situation where that arrow could hit either the riser or the shelf, I don't want it to make any noise. Uh, also, you know, there's times when you're stalking, you know, whether you're stalking an elk and you're calling or if you're stalking on a mule deer or an antelope, you know, when you're carrying your bow in your hand and you may have the arrow on the rest and you've got your arrow on the string, you know, that arrow can move around within that rest. And I've got that, like I said, I've got that QAD that has the top container bar, which is going to keep that arrow within the rest. And, and like I said, it's got the bar across the top to kind of keep it in. But you know, that arrow can cling around and move a little bit when I'm on a stock. And I want to make sure that those forks on my rest are covered in some sort of felt all the way to the top. I also want to make sure the crossbar that goes across the top of the rest that keeps the arrow on the rest is covered and quiet. Uh, if your arrow, potentially if you're carrying your bow in your hand and that arrow bounces off the bottom of your sight, you know, it might be worth it to put a little adhesive backed foam or moleskin on the bottom portion of your sight so that that arrow doesn't make any noise. Um, noise is, I mean, it can ruin a stock so quick and you absolutely want to make that thing, your setup as absolutely quiet as you can make it. Uh, and it's just thinking about the little things, the little details, details in your rest, details in your, you know, maybe like I said, the bottom of your scope. It's just anything that you can try to do to uh, preemptively avoid any noise uh, that might spook an animal. So, you know, check those out. Those are both exercises that I'm doing right now. Uh, next tip I would give you is it's really important to make sure that all the accessories on your bow are tightened down. Um, so I go through my entire bow 
with a set of Allen wrenches and I just make sure that every single Allen wrench screw in my entire setup is snug. So I'm checking things like my draw mods in each cam. I'm just checking those to make sure that they're screwed in and they're snug. I'm checking any bolts that are in my rest. I'm checking any bolts or screws that are in my sight. Uh, if you got a quiver that bolts onto the side of your bow and your sight, uh, make sure that that thing is snug and that it works properly. Make sure that all the bolts are tight. Uh, it would even, I know some people that use a little uh, blue, you know, thread tightener. Essentially, it's going to thread lock those in. It's not a bad idea to add a little of that to some of your threads and just tighten those in. Uh, in regards to this, there's one thing that is notorious for always falling off or, you know, becoming loose, and that's your back bar bracket. So if you shoot a back bar on your bow, that back bar bracket is it goes into the riser and those are notorious for coming loose. I don't know how many guys I've seen at 3D shoots like Total Archery Challenge that are walking around asking other people, other shooters, hey, do you have an Allen wrench set because my back bar bracket came loose. Uh, I've had it happen on a hunt, an elk hunt in, in Wyoming that I did where my back bar bracket came loose. Uh, so go through and make sure that that thing is snug down and is absolutely as tight as you can possibly get it. Uh, along with this, kind of ensuring that everything stays the same, I like to take a silver Sharpie and I like to mark important things on my bow. So, for example, where my cables cross through my cams for my cam timing, I like to take a silver Sharpie and just make a little mark of it on both cams so that I can line that up with the cable. That way, if there was any issues with those things moving, I would know it instantaneously. A lot of bows have indicator marks. I know Matthews have got the little hole that runs in the cam that you can kind of line up with the cable and you can kind of make a guess on your timing on uh, relation to where that cable runs through that hole. But I like to take a silver Sharpie and do it. It's just a quick visual reference. Uh, I also like to silver Sharpie things like my sight. So my windage, my left to right, also my horizontal. I just like to mark, same thing with my rest. I like to make a silver Sharpie mark on my rest so that should there be any movement whatsoever in my left to right or my up and down on my rest that I will very quickly and easily see it and I can return it back to the default position, the position that I tuned it in the summer, and I can do that with just a silver Sharpie. I also, when I'm doing this, I like to take a notebook and I like to write down in a notebook the position for each and individual accessory on my bow. And that just ensures that if I get out of the field, if anything was to happen, you know, that I could very quickly and easily return it to that default position. Uh, I would want to test it, but like I said, I can very quickly uh, return it to, to the default. And stuff happens. I mean, when you're out hunting, you know, th things can happen. Um, same things with your back bar. If you're shooting a back bar, you definitely want to make a silver Sharpie mark on the left and right adjustment of your back bar and also the vertical position because, like I said, those are notorious for falling out. Um, you know, I've taken falls when I've been on stocks and I've put that back bar into the hillside and I've been able to go back and look at it and check to see if those are in alignment and in the exact same position as it was when I went out into the field. And if not, I can very quickly return it back. Um, so that's one little tip, little detail. I would highly suggest you guys jump into, make sure that you cover those. Uh, another little detail, uh, most people are shooting at this point a slider sight. So you might be shooting a five pin slider and using your bottom pin as kind of your rover pin for those extended yardages, maybe 70, 80, 90 yards. 
uh, you might be shooting a three pin and or a two pin or even a single pin. Um, but a lot of people, like I said, are using those slider sights at this point, and you've probably got a sight tape on your bow, on your sight. Um, you should make sure that your individual pins are sighted in. Again, my favorite method for sighting in on the uh, height of your individual pins is to take a piece of tape, put it horizontally across the target, and then shoot each individual pin in. So the great thing about that horizontal line method of sighting in your pins is you're not, not necessarily uh, worried about the vertical. You're just worried about the horizontal, which is the height of your arrow and that pin, that relationship. So I like to use that horizontal tape method and sight in my individual pins. So make sure that your pins are sighted in. Um, and then going back to those sight tapes. So once you've got a sight tape built for your bow and your sight, uh, every year, a lot of those that are shipped with your sights, the individual sight tapes, they're just a piece of tape. You know, you cut them out, you slap them on your sight, and they may or may not be waterproof. Some are, some aren't. The sight that I've got on my bow right now, uh, the sight tapes that came with that bow are not waterproof. They're kind of printed on printer paper, if you will, adhesive back printer paper. Um, if you're building your own sight tapes at home from a program like Archer's Advantage, uh, you're printing those on a piece of printer paper, you're cutting it out, and then, you know, taping it to your sight. Uh, one thing that you definitely want to make sure of is that those are waterproof. Uh, if you get out and you get in a rainstorm and your tape falls off and you're shooting a single pin sight, man, you are in a world of hurt because you definitely don't know, you know, the movement and the adjustment in your sight to hit at intended yardage as you get back further in range. So you definitely want to make sure that your sight tapes are waterproofed. Uh, what I like to do is take my sight tapes, I'll just wrap it in a piece of clear tape, uh, cut those out. I will then tape those to my sight. And then often I'll take a little bit of clear nail polish or clear glue, kind of lay in a layer over the top of that. I just, I get paranoid about that sight tape falling off. So I definitely want to make sure that my sight tape is both waterproof and that it is not going to move on the site. And again, that's just a little minor detail that could have a major impact on your hunt. Uh, a lot of us are taking time off of work. We're traveling great distances. We're investing all kinds of time and effort into making these hunts happen. So definitely do not let something really simple like a sight tape that is not waterproof that gets washed off or you know falls off in a rainstorm when you're out in the woods. So that's another little quick tip. Um, I'm going to move down into some other just gear tips. Uh, one thing I'm doing right now is I'm going through all of my gear. Uh, I'm looking at my gear list. Uh, I'm checking things like my bootlaces. So I've got a pair of boots I'm going to be wearing. I've been wearing them most of the summer, doing some hikes in them. Um, I've had bootlaces break on hunts. It's not fun. At that point, you're using, you know, hopefully you've got some paracord. And I've used paracord as a backup to a bootlace. But check your bootlaces. And if they're in bad shape, replace them. Um, you know, check things like your bino harness. Uh, one thing I should note about your bino harness and your, your range finder, I often notice when I'm at the range and I'm shooting, as I pull my range finder out and I put it to my eye, the tether that I've got, uh, that goes to the case, uh, it's got a little plastic piece on it. And there's some times when I pull that thing out, it'll make a little clanking noise against my range finder. And I started to just notice that as I was practicing with my range finder. 
and I went back through and I laid some moleskin around that little quick disconnect portion of the tether that goes to my rangefinder just to ensure that if that thing bumps up against the side of my binoculars or the side of my rangefinders, I'm pulling it out, that it doesn't make any noise, that it's quiet. Uh, so that's a little, a little tip to, again, that goes back to making your whole setup more quiet. But check your bino harness, you know, check your pack, look at your buckles, um, you know, look to see if, if uh, the zippers in your backpack are in good, you know, good working order, that they don't need any repairs, that they're smooth, that they open up. Uh, you definitely want to check your sleeping pad. Uh, I've known guys that have packed for a 10-day backpack hunt, got out into the field, and their sleeping pad, you know, maybe they had a hole in it last year or, you know, it had some issues and it just wouldn't hold air like it used to. So you definitely want to blow up your sleeping pad before you go out into the woods and go hunting and make sure that it holds air. You know, leave it pumped up all night, make sure that it doesn't go flat because there's nothing worse than getting out on a hunt and your sleeping pad goes flat. Uh, make sure that your stove works. So if you're going backpack hunting again, you know, buy a new canister of fuel, screw that thing on, make sure that the igniter works. If you're using an igniter, just make sure that it works properly. You know, try to boil a pot of water, see what it takes, make sure that it works. Uh, you definitely want to check things like your headlamp. So I'm carrying a primary headlamp in my pack. I'm also carrying a secondary headlamp in my kill kit, which is a small packable headlamp. Uh, that's the Petzl Bendy. But you want to make sure that both of those work, uh, that all the modes on them work. Um, it's not a bad idea to check the battery life on them to see, you know, put a new pair of batteries and just give you an idea of what the battery life is. Uh, or you can even check the specs on the uh, websites of the various products or headlamps that you use. You just want to have a, an idea of, of what you've got in terms of battery life that helps you prepare and know how many batteries you may have to bring if you're not using uh, a rechargeable headlamp. But definitely you want to make sure that your headlamps are in good working order. Um, you know, I know I pulled a headlamp out here recently and planned on going a little hike and the piece that goes over the band that you actually wear around your head had broke and it wouldn't stay on and it was super annoying, it kept falling off. Um, I don't want to find that out when I actually get out into the field and go hunting. Um, another little tip in regard to equipment is just ensuring that your knives are sharp. Uh, again, it's super frustrating. You start into quartering an animal up and your knives are just dull because you didn't take the time to sharpen those blades up in the off season. Uh, you want to make sure that you've got batteries, new batteries. Uh, I like to go ahead prior to the season and put a new battery in my rangefinder. That ensures that my battery uh, is not going to, you know, leave me in a pinch where my rangefinder doesn't work. Um, Game bags. You definitely want to check your game bags. Make sure that you don't have any holes in them. Make sure that they're clean and washed and that they're ready to go. They don't have any stink that's going to draw any bears into camp. Uh, and definitely make a gear list. If you guys don't have gear lists, if you're not making them on your own on a spreadsheet, we have plenty of options uh, on our website. Uh, this next week, I'll actually be doing another video. We'll put it up on our YouTube channel. I'm going to run through my elk gear list for this coming year. But you definitely want to have a gear list, and as you're compiling your gear, you want to check those things off. Not only that you have them, but also that they're in good working order. So that's definitely something you want to do. Um, one of the next steps I like to do, you kind of got your gear, your gear lined out. Um, I like to start, a little, like I said, a little early. You know, I'm not, I'm not excessive. There's some people that might start two weeks or even, you know, a month out and kind of getting their gear together. 
Uh, I, I don't go that far. I'm typically maybe three to five days in advance of going on a hunt. I'm getting all my gear out and I'm getting my gear list. And like I said, I'm testing everything to make sure that it works. Uh, if I start too early, it seems like I can get a little lackadaisical and I'll forget things. But I, I feel like if I start, you know, maybe four or five days before leaving on a hunt, um, you know, I'm pretty sharp and, and I'm focused and I'm, I'm excited about my hunt. And I'm also ensuring that I get all the pieces of gear that I need. Uh, along with that, uh, one thing I like to do is go through and check the state rules and regulations for the species and the tag that you have. Um, each state is different. They have different rules, different regulations. You know, some states in regards to meat recovery, they only require that you take the four quarters, the back straps, and the tenderloins. Some states require that you take everything. Uh, there's a state, you know, like Alaska and a lot of areas require you to take bone in quarters, you know, including ribs. Uh, you know, New Mexico, they require you to take a certain percentage. I think it's like 75% of the neck meat. Um, you know, I, I always try to take as much meat as I possibly can. Uh, but, you know, you want you want to be aware of the state rules and regs. Uh, state like Colorado, you have to carry your hunter education card with you in the field when you're hunting. So that's a little tiny detail that you want to be aware of if you're planning on on hunting that state or any state for that matter. You just nothing will ruin your hunt better, worse, <laughs> I should say, than uh, if you harvested an animal, you've had a really good hunt and a really good experience, and then you get back to the trailhead, you've got your animal loaded. You know, you get stopped by a game warden and, you know, hopefully you've done everything to your willpower, you know, within your power to be legal and on the up and up. But, you know, like I said, there's those little tiny details and they vary state by state, you know, and if you get ticketed or you get a warning, um, you know, if you have a bigger issue, man, it just, it really can leave a bad taste in your mouth and it can really ruin the experience. So, you know, it's on you guys, it's on me, it's on all of us as hunters to make sure that we understand the individual rules and regulations of each state, each species that we plan to hunt. So, you know, now's a great time to go through and familiarize yourself with the individual state that you're hunting and, and the rules and regs. Um, kind of going along that, um, make sure that you have your days scheduled off from work. Uh, you know, make sure that your boss knows, um, if you are the boss, make sure that your employees know that you're going to be off. Uh, if you got families at home, you want to make sure that everybody's on board on when you're going to be gone and give them an idea of where you're going to be, uh, kind of along those same line. I think this is a great time to make sure that your satellite messengers, uh, I would highly suggest everyone have a satellite communicator so that they can keep touch with family and friends. And also, you know, they have the, uh, just the the confidence to go into the field knowing that you've got that SOS button should something go wrong. This is a great time to get those devices out, make sure that they're charged up. You know, you can activate those, most of them on a monthly uh, basis. So you can get a monthly subscription. You want to make sure that those are active while you're going to be out hunting. And it's good to send some messages, you know, both sending and receiving some messages to those devices. Make sure that they're Bluetooth to your phone if you're planning on using your phone uh, in conjunction with those units. So it's a great time to make sure that those work. Um, but like I said, going back to, to work and family, uh, you, you want to go out into the field with a clear mind, clear heart. Uh, you don't want to go out there with any added stresses of a job or your life or your kids or your wife whatever, or, or your husband for that matter. Um, you, you just want to go out with an absolute focus and clear mind. 
And you can't do that if you've left things on the table at home. So make sure that all your work duties are wrapped up, taken care of. Make sure that your days are scheduled off and make sure that everything is just absolutely covered so that you can go out and you can focus. Um, that's one of my actual favorite things about hunting, to be honest, is just the, the disconnect. So being able to get away from day-to-day life, you know, all the all the duties at home, all the duties at work, and just really disconnect and focus on one thing. It's very rare, I think, in this world today where you get an opportunity to just focus on one task to do one thing. And I really love that about hunting. It typically takes me, you know, two to three days to feel like I've completely disconnected from everything. And and I've really kind of focused in on the task at hand, but, uh, you know, make sure that you guys do that. Take care of everything at home. So that when you go out into the field, you have nothing to worry about other than fulfilling your tag. Uh, and then finally, kind of one of the last tips that I would throw in, uh, and again, I would love to hear any other tips that you guys have got out there. One of the last tips that I would give you is now is a great time to practice with your calls. Uh, if you haven't been already, hopefully you have been, but if you haven't and you're planning on going elk hunting, now is a great time. Pick up some calls and really start practicing. Most of us have a little bit of drive time or, you know, if you work at home like I do, um, you know, there's some time frame where the kids are out of the house and I can just practice my calling and work on work on my calling at lunch. Uh, I talked to Dirk uh, Durham here on the podcast here this last episode. We were talking elk, elk hunting, elk calls. I asked him, you know, how many calls do you go through in a season? He suggested that he goes through maybe three or four, um, you know, and that he likes to buy new ones, get new ones. So now's a great time. Don't wait till the last minute to get your elk calls. So get those elk diaphragm calls. Even if you're using an external, you know, bite and blow type call, it's a great time to pick up an elk call and just start getting familiar with it and making sure that it works every single time and that you can produce the sounds that you need to. And that goes along with those diaphragm calls. You know, they're not a, they're not a, you know, buy once and you're done type of gear. You're going to have to buy new ones every single year myself included. I'll be in Vegas uh, this coming Monday, visiting the gear shop, doing some content down there, filming some videos. I'm going to buy some new elk calls just to make sure that when I go out in September, that I've got new elk calls, uh, relatively new, I should say. I'm going to practice with them, but you know, that I know that every time I put one of those in mouth, my mouth and, you know, I step up to a ridge to blow a bugle that I'm going to be able to produce the sound that I need to. Uh, so those are kind of the things I'm thinking about right now. And like I said, the I really feel, I, I genuinely feel it like the devil's in the details. It's the little things that can make a huge difference. If you take care of all the little things, you add those up, uh, it's going to make you more successful in the field. And I really do feel like the details are the difference between people that, you know, have success every now and then and people that have success year in and, and year out. Um, you know, I, I should touch on one more thing. I, I kind of debated on this because I think people are funny about it, but you know, your, your layering and your gear system, your clothing, um, you know, make sure that you have good clothing that works for you, that it fits right, uh, that you're going to have enough clothing to satisfy the type of hunt that you're doing. Uh, and then this is the thing I would, I would touch on. I'm a little bit old school in that I still think that, you know, maybe you can gain yourself a little bit of an advantage by washing your clothes in some scent killer and then I, I do like to take my, my hunting clothes and throw them in a bag with some sagebrush and some cedar trees and some pine boughs. 
Now you're going to get some human funk on that, you know, probably the very first day that you're out hiking. And I still don't think that you can totally uh, fool a deer or an elk's nose. I think if you got the wind blowing towards them across you, you know, it doesn't matter how much scent killer or how much, you know, pine bells and sagebrush that you put in a bag and for how long with your clothing, I don't think you're going to fool an elk's nose completely. But, you know, there's the potential, I think, to maybe buy yourself a, a few seconds in a, in a moment where the wind swirls. And it's just a little tidbit, just a little detail that I still like to do. Uh, so I've got to get my clothes all washed, get all the scent off of them. And then, like I said, I like to throw those in a, in a bag with some sagebrush or some pine bells. Uh, so that's just a, a last and final detail. I'm sure there's a million more. Uh, probably as soon as I get off of this, I'll think of a bunch that I probably should have included. But hopefully I, I suggested some things to you guys that will help you out. Um, I would love to hear any tips and tricks that you guys have got to get ready for your upcoming season. Um, so that's the podcast for the week. Again, I would love to hear from you. Uh, and mostly I just want to say good luck to everybody. We, we wait the entire year. You know, we prep, we shoot, we practice, we run. Uh, I've been running. My diet has been super good the last month. I've lost some weight. I'm feeling really good. And I'm just excited. I'm excited to get out into the woods. And I've waited for this all year, you know, and, and really this is the time. You're probably only going to get, a, you know, maybe 10 days if you're lucky. Uh, I'm fortunate in, the, in that I work for Go Hunt, so I get a few more days in the field every year. But it's a, it's a short window that you get in the grand scheme of things, uh, a way to get out into the woods and actually hunt. And there's nothing more satisfying than finding success, you know, doing the thing that you set out to do and seeing all the preparation that you put into it come together and really, um, you know, filling that tag, whether it's a, you know, a buck of a lifetime or a bull of a lifetime, or, you know, maybe it's your first bull, or maybe it's a cow or a spike like me, I'm going to be really excited to put some meat in the freezer. So um, there's nothing like that feeling. And, you know, we waited for it all year, all year long. So, you know, make the most of it. That's really all I can say. It's kind of my, my parting words for you is, you know, make the absolute most of the days that you get in the field because they, they just don't come around. So I'll leave you with that. Hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Uh, like I said, use the promo code game trail. You sign up for a go hunt insider or a go hunt maps account and good luck this year. Uh-huh.